be prepared for something completely different. I'm just kidding. But it might be something different in certain aspects. So our paper will be called Somatology Reconsidered Life as a Methodological Guide for the Explication of Life. Um, now, as this conference suggests, of course, embodiment has become a really, really popular notion in contemporary cognitive science, in contemporary philosophy of mind. And it is interesting how a notion that was almost completely unknown, almost approximately 20, 30 years ago, is now, has now entered the very center of those disciplines. Now, I've used a little quote here that was not um, directed uh, directly at the, at the notion of embodiment, but it was related to uh, the, the, the idea of enactivism and to enactive approaches in cognitive science, so that uh, far from being at the gates, the barbarians are, it seems, now occupying the cafes and in the heart of the city. And this would, of course, be related to the advocates of embodiment in this variety or the other. And it seems very fitting, especially for Vienna with its uh, cafe culture, right? Um, uh, in fact, embodiment or um, the notion of being embodied is actually so popular that, that it's become one of the E's in the famous 4E approach, approaches to cognition that were already mentioned today in Giovanna Colombetti's presentation. Um, so I won't dwell on this too much. But as you know, the main idea that um, um, in opposition to the older approaches that somehow construed cognition and mind more in these um, heady, uh, more in these disembodied terms and concepts, uh, now the tendency was to construe them uh, as something that is situated, something that is more dynamic. So instead of cognition being a manipulation of certain uh, mental repre representations, uh, cognition now became um, extended, embedded, enacted, and of course embodied. Sometimes an A is added extra, so sometimes you will find the acronym 4EA, but this is, I think, uh, not as... I mean, they were competing for a while, the two acronyms, now it seems that for sheer symmetry, the E's are winning, the one with the A. So, Giovanna, sorry for that. <laughs> Uh, but of course the question here is, one can ask, what precisely is meant when you're talking about embodied cognition, when you're talking about the embodied mind? Because it would seem that, and this, was, this has also been mentioned uh, in several talks, uh, that the increase, uh, um, uh -huh. so no, it should be vice versa, I apologize for that. So the increase in popularity somehow was correlated with a decrease in clarity. <laughs> this way it doesn't make sense. Um, so the idea is basically this, that not only is, it not, is the notion of embodiment becoming more and more vague, but also its original implications seem to be more and more diluted. Um, so much so that recently, quite recently, Sean Gallagher even speaks, uh, in, in a recent article, Sean Gallagher speaks about the invasion of the body snatchers. Some of you have seen the, seen the film probably, where the aliens come to the earth and then invade the bodies. So uh, what he means by this is that there are actually now um, approaches 
to cognition and mind that call themselves embodied, but actually leave the body out of the story. So the body for them is merely uh, certain parts of the brain that are somehow related to the body, so that either represent or whatever uh, the, the body. Um, so for this reason, we decided to go back to the very roots <laughs> uh, and to see how the term actually entered the discussion within cognitive science and certain, as, uh, certain um, uh, currents of philosophy of mind. And to this, we will, we of course, necessarily have to go to the, the embodied mind, the book The Embodied Mind by Varela, Thompson, and Roche. That was published in 1991 and is now has been recently republished in, a, in an extended version. Um, so there, basically, the authors claim, as you probably know, that cognition and mind have, have been robbed of something very, very important. And this important element, constituent, is actually lived experience. So experience. Um, by focusing on subpersonal, on subconscious processes that go on within a human being, this lived experientiality has been lost, has been somehow has fallen out of the picture. And the main idea was to somehow try to introduce, to, to introduce this um, lacking element. Uh, and what the authors actually call for is a constant circulation between lived experience and scientific understanding. So the study of lived experience and scientific understanding. Now, here is where body enters the picture. So the body as normally uh, thematized or construed within phenomenological tradition, this duality of the body. Uh, body as a lived body on the one hand, and body as body as an object, Körper, on the other. And I apologize for not sounding so cool as the, my German colleagues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because the German is a cool language. <laughs> <laughs> well, they definitely, I mean, we, we've established uh, uh, in, in certain uh, circles that whenever you try to add a bit of depth in your presentation, add a German word. I see. Whenever you do that, you will sound definitely a bit more profound. <laughs> so, yeah, here I am being profound. So, live body, yeah. So, not only is a human being uh, has a body, also Kürper haben, but it also is a body, so uh, life design. The idea was precisely this, to somehow cash in on this dual aspect of the body and try to integrate into this, this into the cognitive science and into um, philosophy of mind. So here is a nice quote by Columbetti and Thompson, uh, where, where it is said that cognition is structurally embodied in the sense that it is subsumed by neural bodily and environmental processes, including other embodied agents, and that cognition is terminologically embodied because, it's, uh, uh, because cognition, as subject, subjectively experienced mental activity, involves one's experience of oneself as a bodily subject situated in the world. So that's the general idea. However, it would seem that from the very inception, it seemed that there, that there is a, some sort of asymmetry uh, at play in this general, generally very interesting and stimulating idea. So, this asymmetry is related to the fact that the top-down uh, approaches, as we would call them, have been significantly less developed than the bottom-up approaches 
in this general picture. And by these two approaches, I mean the following. So they differ approximately from their point of departure and by the preferred methodology they would use. So the top down, by top-down approaches, I mean uh, approaches that start with a lived body, and their preferred methodology would be scientifically informed phenomenological analysis, where, whereas the bottom-up approaches um, start from the body as an object and use what we might call phenomenologically inspired or informed scientific explanation. Now, this is reflected in how, for example, the status of phenomenology has often been treated within or discussed or addressed within these discuss uh, contemporary discussions um, um, within the 4E community. Um, most, for the most part, what has been discussed is what is called naturalization of phenomenology. So this um, top, uh, bottom-up approach of how we might integrate, uh, how we might integrate phenomenology within the concept, within the framework, framework of natural sciences. And as you, as you probably know, there's been a lot of discussion on, of the, on this topic. Actually, Varela co-authored also a book with the same title. So, uh, but what is less known is that the idea was to actually write and publish a book that would be called Phenomenologization of Nature, and there's a word that probably isn't going to catch. Uh, so, uh, Phenomenologization of Nature, where actually the question would be, how can phenomeno phenomenology change our understanding or modify our understanding of nature and also of natural sciences? So that was the general idea. And several authors have recently, myself included, claimed that this would be, this uh, complementary move would be necessary in order to actually establish this circulation. Um, what this would mean, or what this would entail, however, is that phenomenology or phenomenological approaches would really need to face up certain uh, very, very challenging problems or very challenging aspects that have uh, about certain theories, about certain models that have been introduced within the 4E um, community. One of these is the so-called strong mind life continuity thesis. And this is also that has something that has been uh, indirectly addressed by Giovanna's talk, because, for example, authors like Di Paolo, Varela himself, Thompson, also uh, Fruis, they all uh, are advocating, uh, would call themselves, themselves advocates of this thesis. And this thesis actually claims that there is a continuity between life and mind. And this continuity is not only structural and organizational, but also phenomenological, which is a very, very daring, very, very provocative and interesting uh, thesis. Um, now, very recently, however, so recently, in fact, that the second article hasn't yet been published, um, so it's not, yeah. Um, some authors have actually uh, questioned how phenomenology might actually contribute to this idea. Okay, the idea was okay. You take the 
uh, bottom-up approaches, and it seems you know at least they can start somewhere. For for example, from the notion of autopoiesis or whatnot. But it seems that it's 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 at least at least feasible how you might start with this process. But how could phenomenology help in this? And their major concern is that so mostly none of these authors, and they're being explicit about this in their papers, are not against phenomenology per se. So they feel that phenomenology is a very useful tool, or however you want to call it, when you want to study human experience. But what they question is whether it can be used to study non-human experience in any type, or any form. Uh, and mostly what they're critical about is Eunasian, or Junasian, uh, it relates to Hans Jonas, so Eunasian, Junasian phenomenology, because Jonas has been used most extensively in uh, these approaches. For example, uh, De Paolo, uh, Thompson, they all draw on Jonas, yeah, on his uh, uh, philosophy of um, philosophy of mind, but we, uh, philosophy of life. But we won't enter too much into this discussion. The idea is that, uh, so they, they launched several critiques, okay? But the main point is, and I think that this was also uh, mentioned by Will, uh, uh, I don't know, it, is it Will, not Wild, right? It's Marcus. <laughs> okay, Marcus. <laughs> anyway, Marcus, uh, at least implicitly, you, you, you launched a similar argument, so that actually what we're dealing here with some sort of anthropomorphism. So because you start from the human experience, you're likely to then somehow um, project this into the other life forms and it seems that you are unable to, let's say, allow these life forms to experience themselves as themselves or what, what not. So that there is uh, this latent anthropomorphism present, although in um, Jonas, it's perhaps not even that latent because he's being quite explicit in in, uh, in his claims that you actually cannot, so that you that the the human is uh, um, the measure of things in a sense because human embodiment is what ena enables us to actually encounter other beings as beings. But let's leave it aside. So but this anthropomorphism that is present and that you need some sort of argument from analogy and this is in fact what Jonas does he, do, he does use uh, argument from analogy so he doesn't take recourse to let's say um, empathy or anything similar he uses argument from analogy and that this is simply faulty that, that, that this is simply a problem you cannot start with your experience and then make up some sort of argument from analogy at least this is what they claim because you analogy between what? How do you know? What, what are the criteria? What are you uh, drawing parallels between? So this is the criticism. Now idea is, <laughs> and this is, uh, this is where the experimental part of this presentation comes in. So the idea is that uh, in order to take these, so in order to take the original, let's call it, Varelian approach seriously, it uh, top-down approaches should be studied rigorously, should be studied systematically. And also that different routes, different approaches should be studied, so different should be tried out to see how far if we can get, if we can get anywhere at all. And 
to make this even more challenging, we've decided to actually focus on, not on animals, but on plants. Why plants? Because normally, for example, in 4E approaches, plant is almost never mentioned. You start with bacteria, you end up with animals and uh, living human beings. But plants are almost, no, not almost, never mentioned. They are just skipped. Because they are problematic. In a sense, you have the feeling how you might start with an, I don't know, let's say with a bacteria or with a living cell, and you have a feeling at least how you might tackle problems related to animals. At least those that are somehow similar to us. The closer the better. But plants, very problematic. So, if we want to somehow try to explore at least the possibilities of top-down approaches, surely plant would be a very interesting object of study, subject of study. Or, anyway, here is where the, my colleague enters the picture, okay. and I can have a short rest. Uh, uh, it's a bit of a culture shock because I will uh, mainly reading um, beware, but okay. I, I start with uh, uh, with the uh, suggestion to to go back to Husserl actually, uh, not to to Jonasian phenomenology, but to the founder of phenomenology instead. So uh, the reason for going back to Husserl is, in our opinion. Uh, because he still offers one of the, the most developed uh, and refined uh, methodological tools for a philosophical top-down approach to date, although it has never been fully established, uh, elaborated. In Ideas 3, written in 1912, Husserl uh, introduces the term somatology to designate the science of the lived body but which was meant not only as a subjective analysis of my own body, but also as a study of the intercorporal, or we can call it the, the zwischenleibliche dimension of any science of the living. Its main goal was to construe zoology so, so, uh, so, so, on the basis of its systematic relations to the spheres of sensations located in the animal body. Zoology, so according to Husserl, needs to treat the animal body not only as a material object of natural sciences, but also as a field of subjectively, subjectively and immediately located sensations, which are responsible for the constitution of the, of the life, of the animal lived body. And Husserl coins the term empfindness for this, for this for these sensations, immediately located. In order for us to comprehend and identify empfindnisse in the animal body, two elements are required. First, the somatic perception of one's own body, and second, the somatic interpretation, Eindeutung, of the alien body. Somatic perception is the more basic of the two. I am, on <coughs> account of the empfindnisse that I have, immediately given to myself as a lived body that is, as a distinct region of various extended fields of sensation. Somatic interpretation draws on somatic perception, on my self-givenness as a lived body, and enables me to see the alien body as another lived body endowed with fields of sensation. Um, it is interesting to note that uh, in 1912, Ideas 3, Husserl explicitly expresses doubts about the possibility of including botany 
and hence biology as a whole in, this, in, in his somatical, somato somatological framework. The reason he mentions is that when confronted with plant bodies, we lack a, that de determinate mode of empathy that would justify their somatic interpretation. And here's a quote. The universal and completely independently performed empathy that permits the analogy is not enough for the investigator. He needs concrete experience of concrete sensitivities related <coughs> to concrete organs, whereby the analogy of the plant organs with brute animal ones to which well-known sensitivities belong, according to experience, must be broad enough to ground the prob probability of the inter interpretation. Um, we can see that Husserl introduces two further elements to specify somatic interpretation, empathy and analogy. Uh, and Husserl basically argues that the similarities between what we know from plant bodies and what we experience as life are not close enough to justify somatic interpretation. Uh, in, um, note, uh, that, uh, note, however, that Husserl at this stage doesn't purport to give the final answer to this problem. This is already suggested by his appeal to matters of, of probability rather than matters of principle. In fact, we can say that Husserl envisions two possible transformations which might allow us to reassess the situation of the plant by increasing the viability of somatic interpretation. Uh, the first transformation is brought about by refinement and extension of empathy and uh, analogy of, of, the of our somatic methodology. Um, we come back to this point uh, in an instant. The, the main idea here is to, uh, that a methodological transformation might open up new ways of empathizing and drawing analogies that we are not yet aware of at the basic stage of empathy or of somatic interpretation. The second possible transformation relates to what we may call with Kuhn theory change, a phenomenon which affects all branches of life, of life sciences and of course plant sciences included. Husserl himself indicates that the exclusion, the exclusion of the plant from somatology is only due to the intention, and aside to aside Husserl, the intention to be as accommodating as possible to the prevailing field of physiological botany and biology in general. In the same vein, he explicitly intends to leave open the question whether somatic interpretation in botany cannot play, or whether in fact it is not playing, it is not playing its fruitful role after all, as it undoubtedly does in zoology, although here too it, there is, this is often not appreciated. This implies that theory change in plant sciences might lead to the inc inclusion of the plant into somatological, somatological framework. Hence the, the possibility of somatic interpretation of the plant body depends not only on the specific methodological toolbox for any somatic interpretation, we come to that in a moment, but also on the advancements and the paradigm shifts in biological knowledge. Um, we can flesh out this point. Uh, we may add that recent developments of, in plant studies, treated under the, under the name of plant intelligence, as well as this ongoing controversy over the so-called plant neurobiology, all these controversies, all these debates indicate at least one thing, that the issues surrounding the somatic interpretation of the plant 
is far from being closed. And more generally, given the fact that the plant can serve as a paradigmatic limit ph phenomenon of any top-down approach to the living, we might discover that the somatology of life as such, including the plant, is at least feasible. But the question is, what are the specific conditions for the appropriate application of the somatic interpretation? And that's where we come in with the biological reading of the Cartesian meditations, especially of the fifth Cartesian meditation on intersubjectivity. Uh, not surprisingly, there exists uh, there exist number, numerous critical readings of this difficult text. Some interpreters take it as a failed attempt to prove the existence of other minds, to treat the other mind problem. Others see it as a circular explication of the constitution of the objective world. Finally, some construe it as an unsuccessful examination of the sense of the alien. However, according to Tanya Steller, the objective of the fifth Cartesian meditation is far less ambitious and therefore far less susceptible to criticism insofar as the phenomenological analysis and synthesis presented in this meditation are meant primarily to answer the following question. Um, that's the formulation of Steller. How is the other given to me on the most basic level? How is the other given to me on the most basic level? Now, the uh, biological reading spells out the same, this same question as follows. How is, the, how is the other living being given to me on the most basic level? There are many passages in the um, research manuscripts uh, surrounding the Cartesian meditation <coughs> during the crisis that clearly indicate that this is indeed one of the key questions of Husserl, of the late Husserl. So, in line with this, uh, with this general dictum, Husserl even reflects upon the somatological status of unicellular life. But we, for the sake of simplicity, we stick to the plant life as, as our limit phenomenon. From a biological reading of the fifth Cartesian meditations, we may expect to find mainly a refined account of the earlier somatology of life. Uh, yeah, uh, namely in the shape of a full-blown theory of empathy which enables somatic interpretation. And this is what uh, the fifth Cartesian meditation seems to deliver. But before entering into the presentation and discussion of this methodology, it might, to be, it might be helpful, helpful to point out that the biological reading distinguishes itself from some other con contemporary readings of Husserl by placing empathy back at the forefront. So now we, of course, we have heard that there is a new, renewed interest in empathy and there is uh, something like an empathy boom. Uh, but uh, some years ago, uh, it was, uh, that was not the case. So the, 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 the standard reading was to, to, um, to, to, to show that empathy is only one particular form of, uh, of intersubjectivity, of pre-linguistic intersubjectivity. And, and I cite Sahabi, in some of the most interesting and far-reaching phenomenological analyses of, of intersubjectivity, uh, they are all characterized by going beyond empathy. That was to, in to, uh, 2001. Um, but, of course, this doesn't preclude its use, the, the use of empathy in the explication of how other living beings are fundamentally given to me. For it should be clear by now that Husserl's key insight of somatic interpretation 
might still hold. Namely, to experience another body as life, I have to perform an act of empathy, uh, the embodied empathy. What, what, what are the specifics of this procedure? And now we come to, uh, to this part of somatic empathy. We, uh, Husserl, in this uh, meditations, outlines something like an elementary three-step three procedure, which is meant to specify the, the process of somatic empathy towards another living being. And this, uh, these three steps are eidetic self-modification, modification, intercorporal pairing, and representation of an alien field of experience. So let's look at them uh, in t uh, uh, each in turn. So let's start with, uh, with uh, eidetic self-modification, uh, som somatic empathy one. Uh, maybe I, I should... Uh, um, I should note that that, that resonates well with the earlier talk, the, 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 the talk before us. It's somehow Husserl uh, uh, gives somehow like a synthesis of of all this uh, or of some of these um, different notions of empathy in a in a yeah in a systematic manner, including resonance phenomena, um, embodied phenomena, embodied embodied empathy, but also simulation. Uh, that's the first point. Simulation is. Uh, what is meant with, with, with the first step, eidetic self-modification. Husserl applies the so-called eidetic variation, one of the cornerstones of phenomenological method, to somatic perception, to the self-givenness of my lived body. As a method based on free imaginative variation, eidetic self-modification enables me to vary or modify my factual givenness at this, uh, as this particular human life in order to arrive at certain invariances or invariances or essences. In our particular case, uh, the essence of being a bodily ego or the essence of being alive. For instance, when I encounter, and here it is, an ordinary pot plant, I can perform eidetic self-modification by imagining, imagining myself as being in, it, at its place, in its place. What would it be like to be a pot plant? having a plant-shaped body. The more general question is whether we could, by performing this type of imaginative operation, if we, we gain uh, any essential insight into what's it's, what it's like to have a life for every living being. We need to take into account that the general value of eidetic variation lies in uncovering the universal, universal structures of experience of experience which presumably hold for all conceivable variations of subjectivity. So, for instance, even when I imagine myself being a pot plant, I must conclude that all transcendent objects which enter into a perceptual relation with my plant body will still appear to me perspectively, perspectively in perspectives, according to the famous eidetic law of Abschattungen, uh, according to which the object is always given um, in in admirations, in abschattungen. Furthermore, when applied to the alien plant body, which motivated my engaging in eidetic self-modification in the first place, eidetic variation has its benefits in paving the way towards empathy by stimulating my capability of imagining alien modes of bodily life. So it's not about replacing empathy, but preparing empathy um, um, yeah, by stimulation. By imagine of, of the imaginative possibilities. 
for we should not overlook that the, that the possibility of performing a so-called um, genetic dismantling reduction, Abbauregulation uh, in German, that's part of, a, of an overall of the overall process of identity variation. This means that I might approach the way of being of the plant by imaginatively dismantling the capacities of my fully developed uh, adult human life, a procedure that brings about the classical top-down approach of other life forms by privation, privation from the capacities of the human life. So that, that, that's the classical um, top-down approach as uh, private, privative biology. However, despite these benefits, the straightforward answer to the question posed above is that in the final analysis, free eidetic variation provides me with no valuable somatological insight whatsoever. Since we should not mistake free imaginary possibilities based on an attitude of arbitrariness for motivated, for real possibilities. To put it differently, the virtue of free imagination is at the same time its major vice. It provides me with an extension of conceivable possibilities without letting me be constrained by any factual reality. For nothing prevents, nothing prevents me from stepping beyond my exemplary case of the pot plant by Im imagining being in place of any inanimate object whatsoever. This in fact shows that my imagination wasn't really motivated at by any particular feature of the encountered plant in the first place, but rested completely on my arbitrary decision. For this reason, eidetic self-modification is not sufficient in order to perform an act of real empathy with the living being. So we have to go to a, another step, and that's step, step two, uh, the step of um, what we may call intercorporal pairing. This term describes both, uh, describes, describes how my own life relates to the encountered alien body on the basis of their corporal similarity. To be sure, the necessary condition for this to happen is that my own life coincides, from the outer perspective, with a particular organismic, organismic form of corporality, with a particular organism, uh, that I am given to myself, to use uh, Husserl's uh, notion, uh, I am given to myself as Leibkörper. Leib and, and Körper coincide. My own Leibkörper enables me to perceive by an analogy based on behaviors another particular body as another Leibkörper. However, the intercorporal pairing is not meant to be a methodological cognitive procedure and that consequentially, and that consequentially that man the manifestation of a somatic analogy between both involved bodies is not meant to be an argument from analogy. On the contrary, the key point of intercorporal pairing is that although it can be prepared by the eidetic self-modification, it can happen only by means of passive association. It simply happens. It's not a, uh, a case of uh, active production. Now we see that in, now we see that intercorporal pairing refers to a situ situational, contingent given givenness, namely the experiential fact of becoming paired with another body in this particular situation, which delivers the motivational ground for performing an act of somatic empathy. Thus, the main value of intercorporal pairing is in limiting the free-floating self-modification of eidetic variation strictly to particular instances of encountered bodies. But are we entitled to believe that these bodies encompass all living bodies? 
the problem arises when we consider the fact that my own human life functions as the originary norm, as the ur-norm, the normal case in the process of intercorporal pairing. How then are we supposed to be motivated by passive association to include all anomalous bodies, anomal bodies, that is, all the other living organisms apart from man and from the higher animals? Uh, according to Hanema, we may distinguish three phenomenological aspects of anomality uh, or abnormality the capacity anomality, the body form anomality, and the membership anomality. And all of them complicate our supposed pairing relation to living beings. Indeed, given their striking dissimilarity, how are we supposed to relate to anomalous animated bodies, including our exemplary, exemplary case, the pot plant? In order to widen the possible scope of intercorporal pairing, there are two enhancement strat strategies we can follow. Um, and both, actually, both of them will lead us beyond, uh, beyond that what was uh, originally established by Husserl. The first strategy consists in expanding the notion of analogy. Uh, according to the former definition of Kant, Immanuel Kant, analogy is not an issue of similarity or likeness, but an issue of pro proportional equality of two otherwise completely unlike or dissimilar similar entities. So this dissimilarity uh, is not, uh, is not, uh, is not uh, negated uh, by drawing an analogy. This clarific clarification helps us to distinguish the wider possibility of somat somatic analogy from the simple reg registering of organismic similarities. In concordance with this suggestion, Husserl himself acknowledges that we can deal with analogous modifications of the human life, for example, when we are confronted with sense organs with which we are phenomenally completely unacquainted, but which serve the same orientation, func uh, the same orientation functions as our organs. That's the first uh, strategy. The second enhancement strategy um, for mending us so to say, repairing Husserl's notion of intercorporal pairing is to widen the scope of somatic interpretation by te technological means um, or by scientific information. So we, we have this, this, this configuration was around uh, in, uh, in, uh, yeah, today. This, this refers to what Waldenfels uh, generally labeled as phenomenotechnic. Uh, in other words, the, the fact that technology is already involved in various processes of phenomenologization. Uh, for our, in our context, it means that the fact of phenomenotechnic allows for an, an auxiliary, auxiliary, auxiliary use of biological studies and of time-lapse videos also, in order to bring forward the hidden, hidden bodily behavior of the plant. But it is important to note that such technological tools aren't destined to substitute, but only to inform or even to transform, to transform our habitual intercorporal experience, which is still ruled by passive association. Let us now turn to the third um, step of somatic empathy um, that we can call a presentation of an alien field of experience. So the, 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 the key term is representation here. 
The function of this last step is to attribute an inner life to the encountered body, a sphere of lived experience or, as we may call it, minimal subjectivity. <coughs> That's a term complementary to what is called minimal organism in some, some debates. Minimal subjectivity which expresses itself in the already acknowledged bodily behavior. Empath uh, em empathic representation refers to experiencing another, another stream of presence, another being here, which although originally, orig originally inaccessible, as Husserl says, is seated in the other Leibkörper. In other words, we are led to acknowledge that what we are in the that we that what we are in the presence of and what presents itself to us is a foreign kind of centered subjectivity that expresses itself in and through the, the other light curve. Note that uh, that in a biological reading the term alter ego ego is deliberately omitted. In fact, the uh, considerable benefit we can de derive from such an representational approach to mindful or mind-like subjectivity is that it softens the strictly ecological framework commonly associated with the top-down approach. The resources for this move towards experiential impersonality or anonymity can be drawn from Husserl himself, insofar as he acknowledges that in the final analysis, uh, I cite him, the structural analysis of the primal, primal, the structural analysis of the primal presence leads us to the radical pre-egoic, the das radikal vorichliche, to the funding basic layer of non-egoic streaming, zur Unterschicht des ichlosen Ströms. Thus, we can say that the genetic dismantling of my own basic layer of non-egoity enables, enables the presentation of non-egoic subjectivity in the encountered living body, in the plant, for example. Simply put, by facing up to my own genetic constitution, I get a basic idea of what it would mean to attribute minimal subjectivity to a plant body. This way of understanding the presentational step of somatic empathy is in agreement with what Steinbock calls the non-funding character of transcendental phenomenology, by which he means that ultimately constitution analysis, and that's the, the core issue of phenomenology, is not really built on ecological subjectivity. <coughs> It's built on subjectivity, but not on ecological subjectivity, on the, on the final, in the final analysis. Of course, we can also refer to, to Merleau-Ponty. The, the theme of anonymity or perceptual embodied life could be uh, elaborated uh, with reference to Merleau-Ponty, who considers the significance of the human life as being the trace of our anonymous existence. However, it should be added that the modif this modified the, the doctrine of representation, uh, as our, our doctrine of representation, doesn't resolve all problems, which, is account, which this account may be confronted with. Above all, there remains the un unresolved general question whether our human capacities of eidetic self-modification, together with our well-founded motiv motivations gained by intercorporal pairing, will ever turn out to be a sufficient condition for experientially apprehending minimal subjectivity in any particular instance. And this, it would seem, remains a matter of contingency and uncertainty. But in order to mitigate this worry, this worry we may point out 
we may point out that the anticipated outcome of representation is not at all to adequately represent the supposed minimum subjectivity. The original, originary inaccessibility of foreign subjectivity remains a fact. So it's not about representation, but to experience oneself in the presence of another subjectivity. To experience myself in the presence of another subjectivity. We may call this a, a Levinasian-inspired consideration, which tentatively goes a step beyond what was originally intended by Husserl towards uh, quasi-ethical ethical inversion of representation. Applied to the encountered plant, this in interpretation of representation would imply what is called a counter-experience uh, in similar examples of limit phenomena. It is not so much the plant that, that enters my field of presence, but rather in a quite uncanny experience that is me entering its field of presence. Such then is the general outline of the biological rendition uh, of Husserl's methodology. Uh, and this account is, of course, far from exhaustive, and there remain several unresolved issues. Uh, we, we point out two uh, problems, uh, namely yeah, the problem of materia materiality and the problem of epistemic justification. First off, the problem of mater materiality. It might be objected that we have only shown to what extent the kingdom of life can be co uh, conceived as coextensive with the realm of the organismic, insofar as minimal subjectivity corresponds with minimal organism. But what we, what we haven't shown is whether a phenomenological account is able to deal with the pure mater materiality of the body. So this aspect of pure materiality is not catched with this account. Second problem of epistemic justification. It could be pointed out that while we have perhaps shown that the coextension of the life with the living might indeed be conceivable and even heuristically useful, and that's uh, the, 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 the outline of all of that, to be heuristically useful, the outlook of all of that, it, sh it remains to be explicated how the, the application of this category in particular cases can be epistemically justified. In other words, the paper treats transcendental phenomenology as a mainly semantic endeavor, and not, as is, is it of, as is often is the case, as a strictly epistemological enterprise. So the, the discussion we had, we had earlier was about, uh, about knowledge, what, and it was an epistemological discussion, but this we, we, we went one step behind, and treated it mainly as a semantic problem, which, which is not a linguistic problem, of course. So there, yeah, there are further elaborations needed, of course. Okay, for the last word, it goes to Björn. Okay, so if we go back to do where we started, um, the idea was um, the question of the ongoing circularity or circulation between both approaches and where the criticism currently stands. The main idea was basically to explore some of the other possibilities, some of the venues, and one of them is by going to the founder of uh, phenomenology, Husserl. Of course, first of all, this, is not an, this hasn't been an exhaustive account of Husserl's phenomenology, which, as you know, is extremely, extremely elaborate, and there are many other aspects that might be developed. But the idea was simply to try 
to move or at least initiate something in this direction. Something uh, to show why this might be um, an endeavor that one might want to pursue, that might seem interesting or valuable. So uh, basically, if we go back to the, to the criticism that was um, unleashed to, to uh, using phenomenology in biology, of course, to a certain extent, one does agree that there are several very important problems and that it is extremely useful that this has been brought to the attention. But another thing that one might point out here is that gymnasium or gymnasium terminology is not identical to phenomenology as such. So phenomenology as such, as you know, is an extremely broad area and there are several different routes that can be taken. One of them is by following, for example, Husserl, but there are several other options, options as well. Not only is there and are there alternative possible readings of Jonas, but for example, there are very, very interesting things that could be found and used uh, from Merleau-Ponty and um, also certain other authors that don't necessarily directly fall in the category of phenomenology, such as Helmut Plesner, for instance, but I'll mention that in the last Second thing is that even though, for example, uh, phenomenology might start with human experience, so with, a human so with experience from the perspective of human embodiment. Um, it is nonetheless true that human beings are also living beings. So it is not completely, um, um, uh, it is not clear that, for example, something like that, uh, something like phenomenology of sentience might be completely out of phenomenology's reach, so something that couldn't be achieved. Um, with a careful phenomenological analysis. The third response that would be uh, is something that's been very prominent here is, and this is where phenomenology probably contributed significantly in the last years, um, and that is that instead of using arguments from analogy, uh, another venue that might be used and might be interesting in these cases is by considering and studying different versions of an empathy. So, by studying potential limits, of course, first the nature, different processes involved in empathy, but also its limits. So, what are its, may, may, what are its reaches? How far can we get from this? <coughs> this is why, for example, the plant, however, perhaps it might seem strange or bizarre, when, especially when related to Husserl, if, for those who know how Husserlian uh, phenomenology normally is construed, is directly um, important for these types of studies because it is some sort of a, a limit phenomenon for many approaches, especially for the top-down approaches. It seems like a limit phenomenon for this reason. It has to be willy-nilly, as they say, point into the uh, put into the center. And the last thing is, and I think that personally, this is the most important aspect, especially for me. Uh, but, um, is that these, these types of criticism, criticisms do actually make very good points. And that is precisely to reopen these debates. So, for example, in the 1991, when, when the, the Embodied Mind was published, the idea of circulation was posited. And it seemed interesting, intriguing. But then, as I said, immediately, or very fairly quickly, a certain asymmetry set in. Now, what these types of criticisms and possible replies might contribute to this is to 
have a new, fresh look at this point from different perspectives and see if there are, in fact, some sorts of crossroads between these different approaches or how we might develop them. So, one of an interesting, perhaps, contributions of the Husserlian reading, of the biological reading of uh, Cartesian meditations, is that in addition to what we've said uh, between the dichotomy of life, sein and Körperhaben, there is also this, um, that this distinction actually is not um, a radical dichotomy, but it might come in there are several variations and there are um, other possibilities as well. So for example, that, 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 that one might speak about living beings having, always having a certain attitude towards their lived body. So not only is there Körperhaben and Leibzeit, but also Leibhaben. And this concept, this idea, this notion that is some, uh, located somewhere um, between the two extremes of life design of, uh, that, in, that involves minimal subjectivity, so to speak, and the Körperhaben that entails, that also includes radical, absolute, full-blown uh, reflectivity, um, might be an interesting concept, an interesting notion around which these types of discussions and debates might evolve. And this might be then an interesting call, or an interesting plea, or an interesting invitation to develop perhaps, or at least toy around with, even if they're in the end unproductive or maybe bizarre or strange, with new methodologies and ontologies, which would somehow then enable us to put more flesh on this general notion, or maybe try new methodological venues uh, uh, or uh, construct new ontological frameworks uh, that would enable us to approach some of these questions differently. And as I get, uh, again said, here, one might draw, for example, on Plessner, also on late Merleau-Ponty, as has been also suggested, or at least who has been mentioned several times, who enables this type of, this type of um, let's say, who at least enables some sort of conceptual framework for non-dual conceptualization of certain uh, um, central notions in biology. So, as I said at the beginning, something completely different. Uh, but I would like to finish off with one thing. So, um, as you know, at least those of you who are um, somehow reading the, the an activist literature, there is an ongoing tendency for having the most radical version, the most radical rendition of an activism. There is constant talk of radicalizing, radicalizing a rendition, for example, Hutu and Mai talk about it, Khmer talk, speak, uh, speaks about it. So. Um, I don't think that, and normally what what I mean by that is, you know, yeah, we have to step away from what has been done at the very beginning and make it more sharp, make it more radical. I, on the other hand, feel that in order to make an activism truly, truly radical, to take the notion of embodiment truly radically, we actually have to step one step, uh, take one step back. So go, go back to the very idea very idea of this body as something that is um, related both to lived body and to body as object and take this notion of the circularity that has been posited seriously 
to investigate it seriously and to try to find, uh, as I said, new venues or um, steps to somehow flesh it out from different perspectives. Anyway, that would be our talk. Thank you very much for listening.